Psalm 132 is where we are at. Again, we are in the last division in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms breaks into five books. This last section starts at Psalm 107 and runs through 150. And then there's this odd little group inside that called the Psalms of Ascent, Songs of Ascent. And they may have shown up in usage in a couple of different ways because some of them do have the feel of the exiles coming back from Babylonian captivity. Some of them certainly originated that way. Um, Some of them may have been used by um, uh, pilgrims coming in to the feasts for one of the three annual feasts, you know, you got go to go to those three feasts annually. And as they came out of the world, maybe hostile environments as they approached Jerusalem, certainly their, their joy of being amongst God's people and heading to a place where God was worshipped, their joy would be swelling up and they would begin, as they approached the city and that, of, that um, wonderful time of worship, they would begin singing these. Uh, it might have been that as they even went into the temple, as they went up the steps into some of the entrances, they would sing these. Some of that, all of that's probably true. And so uh, Psalm 132, and uh, um, actually they start back in 120, right? Psalm 120 through 134. We looked at it from the standpoint of a life that is ascending. If we are going to, uh, with Paul, uh, press toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that walk of, with the Lord that is that is going in the opposite direction from this world, which is descending, uh, then maybe that's the way we can kind of take a hold of these in some ways. Psalm 132 is about um, the promises uh, made by the Lord to David. Um, it's a song of a sense, Psalm 132, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. And um, uh, you remember that uh, David, at a time when he was... um, now on the throne in Jerusalem, and things were pretty much buttoned up around him. He was no longer Israel's most wanted. Uh, he, King Saul has been dead for a long time, maybe seven, eight, nine years, and he has established himself in power, and um, the borders are secure, um, and Israel is uh, enjoying prosperity and blessings. And David goes about uh, building uh, around the city of, and in the city of Jerusalem, uh, you know, his own palace, his own house, and then his own heart um, really didn't really care about that. He really didn't care too much about being king and stuff. He did it for the standpoint of being obedient to the, obedient to the Lord, but he re- what he really cared for, it seemed like, was that the Lord was honored and that the Lord had a place of his, you know, to call the Lord's house. And so uh, he comes up with that idea of looking at his own house and say, I live in this beautiful mansion, and the Lord is, you know, the place where he's worshipped is this little humble little tent out on the edge of things. And so he uh, goes to um, 
the prophet Nathan, who was a great prophet, he just made this one little mistake. When David came to him and said, hey, this is what I do, Nathan said, yeah, go ahead. That sounds like a great idea. Go ahead and do it. But then uh, without asking the Lord, he said that. And then later the Lord had to come to Nathan and say, well, Nathan, uh, David cannot build the, the, the temple. It's not, it's not going to be appropriate for him to do. He's just, he's, he's got a lot of blood on his hands there. And, and so I don't want that, um, you know, he does, David can't build it. His son Solomon will. And you've got to go back and tell him that. So then David he receives the news that he can't build the temple, but what he, understanding what the Lord has said, he realizes he can do everything except build it. So he spends a great deal of time and energy doing everything but actually building it. He secures all the building materials, all the plans, all the land, does everything in preparation for it to be built. And this is just exactly where we are in this. This is David's promise to the Lord. Uh, I am going to find a place for the Lord. And at that time also, uh, remember, the, the Ark of the Covenant kind of had a, a funny trail. It went from uh, Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, um, and during a low point of, a um, uh, spiritually low point under King Saul, th- uh, during the Philistines' um, attack, they thought that they could bring out the ark as a lucky rabbit's foot and bring it into the battle, and it would win the battle for them. And um, during that battle, the ark is captured, right? Remember that? And then it spends some time kind of like as a hot potato being passed between the cities of the Philistine because it comes with some bad consequences for them, and uh, nobody really wants it. Eventually, it comes back into the city uh, back to the nation of Israel, and spends 20 years in the guy's house um, uh, in Kirjath-Jerim, Obed-Edom. And uh, he gets the ark for 20 years. I, I'm still impressed with that. And um, so finally David brings that ark back in, and, and Psalm 32 is, is a little bit about that. He says, uh, we heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of the woods, saying this is the Ark of the Covenant. It's, it's, that term in the fields of the woods could be just a term that meant over there in that guy's house. He might have been on the edge of the country. Um, so he, they say, let us go into the, his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the Ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and your saints shout for joy. Um, you know, there's some interesting things in there. The ark, as you can see the uh, kind of the processional in your mind. Um, the ark's going up to Jerusalem finally. Um, you know, they made two attempts at it. This is maybe the second one. Everybody comes out to see that happen, right? It's like bigger than the Olympic torch going through city, right? It's, uh, the ark is going up to the city of Jerusalem. And so, um, uh, I, you know, I'm struck with this, that phrase, you and the ark of your strength. Um, you have probably seen um, the occasional documentary about religious processionals around, you know, in, especially in Hinduism and things like that, that bring out the statues that are, and they parade them through the streets. Well, they actually think that's the God. And um, so... I find it funny that then, you know, the, the, the processional here, you know, you can't see the Lord, but it's the ark of your strength. 
you know, you just kind of switch out the, 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 the images there. There's the Hindu god, whatever, going through the thing, multi-armed, maybe got an elephant's head or something like that. You go, Ugh. And then, you know, you switch over to see this processional of the Hebrews, and there's a box. I mean, it's really what it is. It's just a box. Uh, it's a gold-covered box, and it's being carried on poles, right? The way it was carried, it had you, you, it's covered with some things so that it couldn't be seen. By the way, you know it's covered with red and white and badger skins? God's a Wisconsin fan, yeah. Um, um, so they take it into the city, and uh, but it's, the, you know, for, for all the things that the Lord could put out there to be a representation, you know what I mean? You're not supposed to make any images of him, and yet the ark of your strength, I'm struck by that. Because remember, it's just a box. But, you know, there's something very significant said about that when you understand what that box is. Because the box just held the law of God that was broken, right? But that box had a lid. And that lid is where the Lord said he would meet with them. And it was called the mercy seat. And it covered that broken law. And uh, that's a very, very powerful image, obviously, um, because we have all broken that law. And um, he has covered our sin with his own blood. And so uh, I think that's a, just a beautiful, a beautiful rendition of the terminology of the ark of your strength. Yes, the strength of the Lord is in the forgiveness of sin, of broken law. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and your saints shout for joy. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. It's literally your Messiah. And it says, the Lord has sworn in truth to David. First there was David's, uh, David's promise to the Lord. This is what I want to do for you. And then the Lord answers him. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. Um, Okay, well, there's some important things said there. Um, There is an unconditional thing said there, and then there is a conditional thing said there. Uh, The Lord has sworn to David in truth, and here's the things he swore. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. There's one thing. And that's an unconditional thing. He doesn't say if. and There's nothing attached to that. He just said, that's what I'm going to do. Somebody from your family line is being given your throne. And they're, they're, he has the right to it, and it's his. Okay, that's the unconditional part. But there is a conditional part. If your sons, there's the if, if your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. So there was the uh, opportunity and the privilege of David's family line to um, occupy that and administrate from that throne, which is uniquely given to the family line of David. And so uh, the unconditional part, again, is... David's family line is given the privilege of the throne that would be established in Jerusalem. It's theirs. Nobody else gets it. The conditional part is they can occupy it if they keep the law. 
It doesn't say that the throne is taken away or that the family line loses. It just says you lose the opportunity to have somebody sit there if they're disobedient, which is, of course, their history. The family line that Israel fell into such idolatry that they lost the privilege of occupying that throne in Jerusalem. And, of course, that will be rectified when Jesus returns and he does sit on the throne in Jerusalem. And it will be completely fulfilled, these promises, when the fruit of David's body, the son of David, and of course, you know, you remember in the Gospels, they over and over again, the son of David, the son of David, they called him that because it's a unique messianic term. They recognized him to be that, and he will fulfill those promises. And then verse 13, uh, down through the end, for the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his dwelling place. Um... Uh, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I desire it. I desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow. Uh, the horn is just an image of strength. It would represent the, the power of his administration. Uh, I will prepare a lamp for my anointed, uh, light, the Messiah's light. His, I, his enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish or gleam. Um, there's some things in there I think that are interesting. Um, remember, this is the Lord speaking, verse 14 through 18. It's interesting. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Um, it's always the Lord's desire to dwell among men. Uh, he wants to be in our midst as Emmanuel, God with us. That was the name, right, given uh, by Isaiah, the prophet, by the Holy Spirit. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And then in the New Testament, of course, we have that in John one fourteen. John one fourteen. For he, uh, he um, tabernacled among us is what it says. He put on flesh and bones. I didn't have that marked. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Um, that's what God has always wanted. When you go to the end of the book, right? Uh, he will dwell among us. We will see his face. Um, that's God's desires to be among us and to be uh, our God and we're, uh, us to be his people. And then, uh, of course, um, 15, 16, 17, unique privileges that were um, given to Israel and to her priests. I will satisfy her poor with bread. He's going to take care of the poor. I will also clothe her priests with salvation uh, and her saints shall shout for joy. Um, again, that's uniquely speaking about the Jews and the Israelites, but it's really easy to kind of step out of that and bring that into the New Testament, right? It says that we are a kingdom of priests. And I'm not switching out Israel for the church. I'm not doing that. But I'm just, some of the terminology does carry over that way. Um, and that he has clothed us in robes of righteousness, right? Uh, the scripture says that. 
He says, I will uh, satisfy her poor with bread. You can devotionalize that one too. Um, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. If you can recognize your spiritual poverty, then he's got the bread of life for you, doesn't he? Praise the Lord. Okay. Um, let's go to Psalm 133, and we're going to go through that very quickly. We're just going to read it, uh, Song of Ascents of David. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The, uh, the beauty and the importance of unity, as it says in verse 1. Um, for brethren to dwell together in unity uh, is a beautiful and precious thing. Um, he says it likens it to oil upon the head, running down on the beard, running, beard of Aaron. Uh, okay, now, to us, you know, that's just not that glamorous of an image (laughs) but um, for them it was it meant something else you know when we anoint somebody with oil we and and pray for them we take the little container and put it and we you know get them with it and then give them a tissue to wipe it off real quick that's not the way they did it they had a um, a carefully crafted oil that was the recipe was given uh, by the Lord and was exclusive to use in the temple very fragrant Nobody else could, and, and nothing else could smell like it. And uh, when they came and anointed you with oil, it wasn't the little, it was, and uh, so it was a cleansing thing. It was a relieving thing. You know, you could, it was combed through, and it would get the dirt out, and then you left smelling good. You left smelling like, well, you left smelling like the high priest, because uh, he was the only one who could really use the stuff. And so um, that's, you know, even in that, wow, what a picture that is, right? Because you go to the New Testament, and we are the fragrance of Christ. And so, um, you know, um, there is a, a unique stamp of Jesus on you um, that maybe the world doesn't recognize for what it is. It has to be a question mark and goes, you know, what are you about? And And they... They don't like Jesus, and so they're going to react negatively to that. But to the other people who are of the Lord, um, you are uniquely family. Uh, You smell like Jesus, (laughs) put it that way. So um, um, Dwight's going to take Psalm 133 for Sunday, too, so we've got to move past it. We can't talk that much about it. Let's go on to Psalm 134. Very short psalm. Um, it is a song of ascent, and the last song of ascent, and and uh, can be just three three verses. So let's read it real quick. It says, "A song of ascents. Behold, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary, and bless the Lord, the Lord who made heaven and earth. Bless you from Zion." Just three quick verses. Um, and it's interesting, it's blessings, it's blessings toward the servants who are in the temple, and then blessings from the temple, you know, because that's where the Lord would meet them, out to the people. 
And isn't that uh, interesting? Um, Bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who who by night stand in the house of the Lord. Okay, so this is the way it would go. You know, if you went up to the feast, it wasn't like, uh, I have to go up to the feast. I've got to be, you know, my schedule says I'm supposed to be uh, at 9 o'clock, do a sacrifice, and then I've got tennis at 11.30, and, you know, and then bridge game later on, and then we're going to go do some croquet. Um, you went up to worship the Lord and to fellowship and to be there in the temple and enjoy being there. And of course, you couldn't stay there the whole night, and so as um, pilgrim travelers left the temple and the courts for the evening, well, the priests still had to stay there. There still had to be the lamps burning continuously in the temple. They had to be managed. There was a lot of cleanup work. There's a lot of preparations, a lot of coming and going still, and there's still a lot of work there. So priests were there 24 hours a day working, shifts, you know, coming and going. And... Um, so um, here's the picture of the last Psalm of Ascent that gives us these pilgrims maybe are leaving the temple for the last time or sometime, and they turn and sing. They might be singing this, you servants who stand by night in the, in the, uh, stand by night in the house of the Lord, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. Um, you know, we can't stay here as much as we want to and worship the Lord, they would be saying, but you can. And so you get the opportunity and the privilege of worshiping before the Lord and serving him in this manner day and night. So bless the Lord. And so um, then, the, then the reply would might come, the Lord who made heaven and earth bless you from Zion. The priests would have the opportunity to turn around and bless them. And um, the Lord who made heaven and earth bless you from Zion. Um, uh, that blessing of the Lord. Um, just uh, everybody's blessed. Everybody's full of joy. Um, everybody um, has the, the opportunity to uh, fellowship there and worship the Lord. Um, you know, even even in the priests being there 24 hours a day, you know, um, there is one who intercedes for us 24 hours a day, Right? Um, you know, that that ministry of them going on all the time in the temple is fulfilled in what Jesus is doing now in ministering uh, intercession for us and praying for us in heaven now. Okay, so that's the last psalm of ascent. Let's go on to 135. Um, Psalm 135. Um, Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise him, O you servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his special treasure. Okay, again, this is an interesting psalm in that it's it's aimed, again, at the servants of the Lord, Verse 1 there, praise him, O you servants of the Lord who stand in the house of the Lord in the courts of the house of our God. Um, It's an exhortation to them to uh, be very, very spiritual people. Um, You know, and that's that's an important thing. Uh, You know, um, we're all people, and though there are 
there's leadership and people up front like myself, still we're all people and we're all going forward in the Lord. And we all need to encourage one another. You need to encourage the leadership. The leadership needs to encourage you. And so this is aimed at the leadership. The leadership needs, leadership of any church needs to maintain that current relationship with the Lord and continue to go forward in the Lord. Um, you know, because, you know, maybe in the early days of ministry, everything's a wonder, everything's new. You don't know how to do anything. And so, you know, there's the dependence on the Lord is, is it's an obvious need because you don't know how to do anything and you've never done it before. And people's lives are, people are asking you heavy questions and wanting you, your direction and your counsel and your, your prayers. And so um, after doing that for a while, though, you know, after, especially as you get older in ministry, you got to be careful because uh, you know how to go places and do the things and how to be there and how to come and go. And, you know, it's easy to just get into a routine and, uh, uh, and just to, to just do it because you know it needs to be done. But that's not what the Lord wants, is it just to be done. He wants ministry to be uh, flowing out of a living relationship with him, even from the, especially from the leadership. And so, um, you know, there's examples, I think, in the scriptures of this both sides. Uh, you know, the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation, one of the seven letters to the church, they had everything going on. They had uh, all the things that you would find important to a, a church. But the Lord said, even after commending them for all that, he said, this one thing I have against you, you, you've left your first love. All the things you were doing, they've, they've gotten so busy, they've left that initial first dependence on the Lord. And, and things weren't flowing out of a love for God anymore. They knew how to do it. And leadership needs to be very careful about that uh, in every church. Um, and on the other side of it, 1 Timothy 4, right, Paul talking to Timothy, he said, let your progress, you meditate on these so that uh, everybody can tell you're still going forward. Let your progress be evident to all. And so I think Timothy represents um, the positive side of that. Um, so um, there you go. Pray for your leadership and the fellowship. You know, everybody wants to be prayed for. Um, so let's go to verse 5. It says, For I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Yes, he is. Um, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven on earth, in the seas and all deep places. And we're now going to praise the Lord in creation. Um, he causes the vapors, that would be like water vapor, um, to ascend from the ends of the earth, the uh, hydrological cycle. Uh, he makes lightning for the rain. He brings wind out of his treasuries. So, again, the Lord's um, power is on display in creation. We know that, right? So um, then, verse 8, um, more, the, more so, though, um, is his power displayed in what he has done to redeem his own. He destroyed the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. He set signs and wonders into the midst of you, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants. Um, 
So, you know, you can tell how important something is by to anybody by how much they talk about it, right? Um, and so it's, if you go to the Bible and you look at how important creation is to the Lord, well, it's important. He talks about it. Certainly, you open up, there's obviously initial chapters of Genesis, and you go on, there's mentions of it here and there in Exodus. The Lord made heavens and earth in six days. Uh, you go to the prophets, they talk about it. A psalm, a couple of psalms here and there. So it's important. Uh, but what does he spend most of his time talking about? He spends most of his time talking about how he will save his people. The redemption that he will perform that the one person will perform, this, the Savior of the world, uh, the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. That's what the rest of the Bible is about. And so you can, you can compare. Which one's more important? Yes, there is a testimony of God's power in creation, but there's a greater testimony in his redemption. Uh, he destroyed the firstborn of, of uh, Egypt, both man and beasts. Remember, um, he's above all gods, and uh, the, the scripture says that um, the plagues in Egypt were an assault on all those gods in Egypt. And um, uh, that his power is on display in that. And yet, um, those, that deliverance out of Egypt, the rescue of, of his people out of Egypt, was only a shadow, a type of what he would do with the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world and setting us free from sin. Uh, and so the greater power is in what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection. Um, so uh, verse 10, he defeated many nations and slew mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel's people. Again, people followed the Lord out of Egypt, mighty deliverance through blood applied by faith. But then there was a next step. The next step of faith was to go into what he, had, what he was buying for them, what he was securing for them, what was theirs because he gave that to them. And so there was a walk of faith to go in and take possession of. And so uh, here it's the mighty kings, the Sihon and Og, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, he gave their land. And so the promised land, um, indicative of the promises of the Lord and the things that he's done for us, um, that he's provided for us on the cross. Um, verse 13, your name, O Lord, endures forever your fame, O Lord, throughout all generations, for the Lord will judge his people and he will have compassion on his servants. He, is, he will judge his people. He has perfect justice, and we're glad for that. We need that, but he also has compassion on his servants. You need justice and compassion. Because if you just have justice, it can be pretty hard. But if you just have compassion, you, could, you, know, you can be totally missing justice. And so he, is, uh, he has compassion and he has justice. And he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, right? So the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. Uh, you know, uh, silver and gold. Um, the golden rule out of the Bible is do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? 
but the golden rule in the world is he who has the gold makes the rules. And, uh, you know, I don't want to operate there. Yeah, I, I'm losing when it comes to that. I'd rather be in the first one. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the works of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them, and so is everyone who trusts in them. This is the second time we've heard this in the Psalms. Back in Psalm 115, we saw something very similar to this. And it's, um, it's a warning, and it's also a promise. Um, it's a warning. If you are not worshiping the Lord, and uh, then you are becoming like what you worship. And, you know, in today's society... Um, the atheists, the militant atheists, are promoted and held up as the heroes of society. Um, they're so enlightened and they're educated, and so we give them the positions of education and things like that. Um, and they like to, to, you know, in their enlightened stance, say that they've dispensed with the need for religion and all that mythology. I'm sorry, but everybody worships something. And despite their claims of not worshiping God, they worship something. Uh, men are inescapable, inescapably worshipers of something. Human beings are. So how do you find it out? Well, you can see what your, what your God is by what's the master passion in your life. What are you willing to sacrifice for? What are you willing to give what is uniquely yours to? That's what you worship. And, he, and the warning is you will become like that. If you worship money, if you worship position and power, you're going to become, well, it's a dead idol. You're going to become spiritually dead. You're going to become unable to hear and see anything spiritually. Um, but the good news is, the promise is, in 2 Corinthians 3, right, that, we with, that all we with unveiled faces are being transformed into his image from glory to glory. Uh, and the one who sees and hears and is full of grace and mercy, he wants to transform us and make us into his own image. He asks, what's that image look like? Well, I th I, the Beatitudes, those who are um, poor in spirit, meek, who mourn over sin, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, or mercy and uh, uh and now that I'm panicking, I'm forgetting now the rest of them. So I better go read them. It's funny, you can memorize it all you want, and then you get up here and people are staring at you, and your mind just, forget it. doesn't work. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted. So uh, it's a promise. Um, you become like what you worship. So bless the Lord, O house of Israel. Bless the Lord, O house of Aaron. Bless the Lord, O house of Levi. Now we're kind of out of that one, right? We're not the house of Israel. We're not the house of Aaron. We're not the, not the house of Levi. Oh, but he includes us here. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Um, you know, that's, that's a good question. How do you bless the Lord? 
And that question was asked in scriptures. Uh, what will I render to the Lord for all of his benefits towards me? Uh, I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. What, is, what blesses the Lord's heart? What can we do? Well, we can believe him for what he has said he has done for us. And take it by faith and move in it and let that transform us completely. All that he has given in his Holy Spirit, in his word, uh, in his goodness, his grace, his forgiveness. Um, that You know, what parent doesn't want to see their kids go forward in, in what they want to provide them, you know? Parents want to give to their kids. And so uh, with the Father in heaven, it's no different. He wants to give, and he wants us to rejoice in all that he gives us. And so how do we bless the Lord? We um, believe him. And uh, out of that is a great privilege to thank him and to bless him and to uh, um, be in living relationship with him. That's what blesses the heart of the Lord. So you who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord out of Zion who dwells in Jerusalem. And finally, praise the Lord. And um, we are not going to have opportunity to go through Psalm 136. It's too rich to power down in six minutes. So um, we will finish there. Uh, Let's stand and we will pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father. We do thank you for your eternal love and care and your concern and all that you have provided. Lord, we again thank you for your word. We ask that it would dwell in us richly, Lord, and that uh, you would be transforming us. We thank you for that great work of your spirit and your word. Thank you, Lord. If you would be glorified through these lives, Lord, that is all our joy. Thank you, Lord. Again, we do lift up the Stoffels and uh, the Campbells. Thank you, Lord. We love you, Lord, and we give you tonight, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.